I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this. Talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. You're listening to Muses and Stuff. This is the podcast that's all about the dolls. They were the groupies, the wives, the girlfriends, and the muses who played such a huge role in rock and roll history by simply being themselves. They were sweet, sexy, brave, and powerful. They went after what and who they wanted, and they made no apologies. We are your hosts, Shanti and Lynx. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Hello. And welcome to Muses and Stuff. I'm Shanti. And I'm Lynx. And we're ready to bring you another episode about uh, Muse, Groupie, Wife, Writer, PhD, PhD, all of the above. <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about Jenny Boyd. And if the Boyd name sounds familiar, it's because she is younger sister to Patty Boyd, famously married to George Harrison first, and then Eric Clapton. Yeah, lots of people know about Patty, but not everyone knows Jenny's story, and she has a very interesting story. I'm excited for you to tell me all about it. Yeah, so that's what that's what we're here to do, educate the people. And then there was another sister named Paula, who mm-hmm. is the youngest of the sisters. They have a couple brothers as well, um, but then they have a youngest sister called Paula. So there's Patty, Jenny, and then Paula. And today we're talking about Jenny. I'm not sure. Um, I've I I don't know if Paula's got a lot of her story out there. And I don't really know much about her either. I've seen her in photos with her sisters mm-hmm. and stuff, but I don't really know her story. No. Okay. She might have been lesser into the rock and roll scene. And she 
did date Eric Clapton for oh, yeah. a little while That's right. before Patty. That's right. That's right. Um, but in Patty's book, she does mention that she always kind of believed that Eric was with Paula to get closer to, get to her. To her. Dick move, Eric. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of many. Mm. So for this episode, um, I used three books. Two I had previously read. So Patty Boyd's book, Wonderful Tonight. Um, Named yeah. after the song that Eric Clapton wrote about her. Uh, yep. So Wonderful Tonight, George Harrison, Eric Clapton, and me. And then the other book was Play On, the autobiography of Mick Fleetwood. Because Patty's book was great for talking about the early life. And Mick's book was great to talk about when he first saw Jenny, all that stuff. And then Jenny's book called Musicians in Tune. 75 contemporary musicians discuss the creative process. That sounds awesome. It was and it is. It's a great book. But it's, I don't know if the right word is dense. Mm. Um, because she interviews like just to name a few eric clapton Joni mitchell bonnie Raitt, randy newman keith richards steve winwood george harrison queen latifah peter gabriel wow. Sinead o'connor stevie nicks don henley and sometimes there are pages where she'll drop like three of these names in in one on one page and everything is interesting and almost worth like oh i didn't or like that's an interesting point so the note taking was a little i guess more on the difficult side Mm. but i would just uh definitely recommend people to go to jenny's book yeah yeah so before we get into her book let's do a little bit of background shall we on jenny boyd yes Okay, so Jenny Boyd was born in November of 1947 when Patty was three and a half. She was actually named Helen Mary to please some of their aunts, but Patty named Jenny after her favorite teddy bear and insisted that she be called that. Oh, that's so cute. Mm -hmm. So in 1947, Patty, their older brother Colin, um, or their brother Colin, he might be younger than Patty. I think it was Patty, Colin, Jenny, Paula, David, Boo. <laughs> <laughs> and then a couple, I think the ones, the, the younger boys are half-brothers. But Patty, Colin, Jenny, and their parents moved to Surrey, England, and their parents moved to Kenya. Um, their parents were very young when they met. I do give um, a backstory of... Patty and Jenny's parents in Patty's episode in the first episode ever of this podcast but it's worth mentioning again for mm-hmm. sure uh, their parents were really young when they met they married during the war and it was right before they were to be married that uh, their father Jock got into a terrible accident he was pretty badly burned by a bomb that went off and even though their mother was hesitant to marry him afterwards because it affected him and his personality and his whole life so much she did anyways Hmm. patty says from that day on he was locked into himself he would never talk about the accident in fact he would scarcely talk about anything my mother had fallen in love with this handsome spirited brave young pilot who had swept her off her feet on the dance floor and had gone the spark had died but having said she would marry jock and with the terrible thing that had happened to him she didn't have the heart or the courage to call it off that's so heartbreaking. Yeah. And it was a pretty unhappy marriage, mm-hmm. which ended up breaking apart pretty soon. Yeah. 
Um, and, you know, you think about, like, he scarcely said anything at all. And it kind of reminds you of, like, Eric. Because you said oh, he only yeah. expressed himself through his music. Oh, yeah. When Patty was four and Jenny was one, the family moved to Kenya. Or when I, I've read Wonderful Tonight a bunch of times and then I listened to the audiobook. She calls it Kenya. It, she has great fun stories about living in Kenya. Yeah, yeah. So they lived in a house with huge gardens, lawns, peach trees. And she said uh, giraffes, Patty said, giraffes and lions would just wander in at any given moment. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. So the parents' marriage started to kind of fall apart. And the father had started spending a lot of time with another another woman. And their mother met a man who one day just kind of showed up. And they were expected to treat as their new father. Their parents got divorced. Patty was in a boarding school. And Jenny and Colin were dropped off at like a boarding nursery school. And their younger sister Paula had been taken with them to a new house in Nairobi. Really separate him. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like Catherine James' story when she was pretty much just dropped off on the door of an orphanage. Yeah. Like, mm. Their mother was 31 and their new husband was 28. And uh, during their childhood, nothing was ever explained and things were a mystery. So weird. Yeah. I mean, a part of me is like, oh, that's so cool. Like they have this history, this past, like living in Kenya. But it's just like, being completely abandoned and like your whole family changing and having no explanation man must have been tough Mm -hmm. so their mother left patty colin and jenny taking her husband and paula back to england yeah so she doesn't remember how long that lasted she said it could have been six months a year but in 1953 the rest of the kids were taken back to england to join the rest of the family it was there that their half-brother david was born um and their stepfather was just terrible like terribly abusive and um she says so patty says I remember the incident vividly. Um, Sitting upstairs in my bedroom, furious that I had been excluded, unable to hear what was being said behind the closed door study, and desperate to know why Jenny had been called down without me. And then finally, after what seems like an age, she came into my bedroom, closed the door tight, climbed into bed with me, and told me exactly what our new father had said. So he was trying to turn Jenny against Patty, saying that Jenny was the girl, good girl, Patty was the naughty girl, and that she shouldn't listen to her because she was a bad influence. And then Jenny remembers going back upstairs and realizing, even though she was so young, that he was trying to divide and rule them, and that she had a choice. She could either be on their side, so the parents' side, or uh, Patty and Colin's side. And as far as she was concerned, there was no contest. She had felt so unloved by their mother in Kenya, even before that she left them there mm-hmm. that she stopped looking to their mother as a source of comfort wow that's so heartbreaking mm-hmm. it's terrible when mm-hmm. uh, adults try to manipulate children like that that's so confusing and we all know th- things that happen in your childhood affect you for the rest of your life you know yeah. uh, we should all be more careful with the way that we handle children and I know you know that <laughs> yeah working with children and everything mm-hmm. yeah. So he said the stepfather was a frightening character, all scared of him, including the mother, although she never would have said so. So they're saying he was a he was a real bully. Mm. Yeah. 
And then it's crazy because then you just think about like, not George, not George Harrison, because I mean, he become, he became really like quiet and stuff when he really got into meditation, but he was never mean and malicious like Eric was. No, yeah. Anyways, um, Patty was modeling in London and met George just before her 20th birthday. And just so people kind of remember, um, they started officially dating when Patty was 20. So at this point, Jenny was about 17. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1968, the two sisters' lives were running in parallel. Jenny had left school to become a model as well. Uh, they dreamed about each other and believed to have psychic closeness. Jenny, I don't doubt it. Yeah, I know. That's so cool. And I love seeing the pictures of them together modeling. I know. They're so gorgeous. They both, like, they're just the epitome of, like, the English 60s bird, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So adorable. Um, but it's interesting, too, because, like, I look at Jenny now and, I mean, looking at pictures of Jenny when she was modeling in 1968, but in a way, too, she just kind of looks like a regular girl. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, they're like the quintessential English bird, yeah, you know? Yeah, because, I mean, you think about models today and you think about the, the top and, like, these girls still had kind of regular bodies. Like, they oh, yeah. had full breasts. and like, Absolutely, yeah. And, I mean, some didn't. I mean, Twiggy, obviously, uh, and that started off a craze. But we we just did an episode on Joe Wood, and she was a model, a teen model as well, and she, she looked, like, normal. Yeah. You know, like, beautiful, but not this glamazon that we kind of associate supermodels with nowadays yeah i was over at mickey's house mickey the rock and roll psychic i was over at a place the other day and we were talking about about twiggy came up and she was telling me how twiggy's mother used to starve her and lock her Mm -hmm. in her bedroom so she wouldn't be able to go to the fridge oh that's so terrible which you know twiggy yeah Okay, so it was around this time when Jenny had left to go modeling that she had fallen in love with Mick Fleetwood. Yes. He had first seen her when she was 15 and he hung out at the coffee mill in Notting Hill. Um, So that's where she and her friends went to school and that's when he decided he would marry her. She was 17 when they started going out and they married in 1970 when she was 23. They were on and off for years together for 15 years and married twice. Hmm. Yeah. It's always interesting when a couple divorces and then remarries. Well, yeah, and it's really interesting and you can understand why when you read his book, which I um, definitely recommend reading mm-hmm. it. So apparently she had seen Mick Fleetwood um, before she had ever really seen him because she was in school and somebody had done like a copper model of him wow and she was like what is that who is that and he's like oh it's my mate mick and he's really nice you should meet him you would like him and you see the pictures of him and oh my god he's so tall and so thin like i was his, gonna say seeing like them together bird. they're so they're so funny because she's so tiny and adorable and he's just so tall and lanky he just towers over her but they look like a, a cute couple, too. Yeah, the pictures in both his book and uh, Jenny's and Patty's are all yeah. lovely. And what's nice about the crossover of all of them is they all, like, they kind of talk about the same incidents that happened, but from their own perspective. Own perspective. So it was really nice to go back and forth and, um, yeah, and, and to read everybody's perspective. So, um, 
This is what Mick says in his book. I'd been obsessed with and was utterly in love with Jenny from the first moment I laid eyes on her. I'd seen her coming, I'd see her coming home from school each afternoon as I sat having my breakfast in the window of one of my two favorite cafes in Notting Hill. She was an absolutely gorgeous young girl, the same age as me, but I couldn't muster the courage to speak to her, let alone ask her out. I was besotted. Jenny and I have been through so much together, including raising our two beautiful daughters, Amy and Lucy. Yeah. So I did, um, I took like a page from your book and I was like, links might want to know about what the daughters are up to today. So I didn't find too much on Lucy, but I saw that Amy is um, a photographer and she had worked for Vogue and oh, nice. um, there's a couple of pictures of her online, pictures of her when she was younger uh, with Stevie Nicks. Oh, awesome. Yeah. 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 That must have been really amazing to grow up. Uh, any sort of rock star child from that era certainly has their own story that would be worth reading <laughs> yeah so he continued to say i adored her but did nothing about it it didn't help that jenny was just as shy as i was and when we spoke about this period for the book it brought tears to my eyes we were just so innocent reliving it warmed my heart we were two kids completely in love and in awe of how love felt and utterly incapable of expressing it to each other oh you can totally picture them all tongue-tied and mm. adorable <laughs> <laughs> So they were both incredibly shy, and Mick's flatmate actually made a move on Jenny. No. And she started dating him first to Mick's whore. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although he and Jenny were in love, he says they were utterly incapable of expressing it to each other. Yeah. Jenny would hang around the apartment hoping to see him while he would try to be out of there as much as possible because it hurt him so badly to see him or mm. her with his roommate oh mm-hmm. she was modeling in new york but would return back and they started spending a lot of time together and eventually started dating was he doing the music thing he was uh, doing music stuff, but he was not yet in Fleetwood Mac. He hadn't met Peter Green. He mm-hmm. hadn't met um, uh, McVie. Uh, so he was in, I've got the names of them here. Uh, Blues Breakers was one of the bands he was in. And another one with a, oh, Peter B's Lunars. So he was playing music, but... Hadn't found his place at yet. At this point, she'd had more success in terms of work. Mm-hmm. Um so I think he really kind of held her on on this pedestal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where were we? Yeah, he said he was over the moon, wanted to be with her every moment of the day. Um, yeah. He said, Jenny and I also started hanging out with her sister Patty and her boyfriend, George Harrison. <laughs> he, he was friends. So now he's talking about George. He was friendly, kind, thoughtful, natural in his own skin, and loved to laugh. He was a whole load of fun, and we formed a friendship. But he formed a bond with Jenny that lasted their whole lives, which is true. You can see pictures of George and Jenny together. It's so sweet. George taught me the value of spirituality because even as a young man, he was very in touch with his soul. I learned a lot just being around him, and in retrospect, even more. George was talented musically, but in my opinion, his real contribution was the lifestyle and cultural change he brought to the Beatles, and therefore the world. They went to India because of him, and look at the effect that had. George was responsible for all of that, and it was because of his spirit. Yeah, it's true. Uh, George was the one that was truly dedicated to all of that, and 
Yeah, I, I can't picture John Lennon and Ringo suddenly being like, you guys, like, we need to go to India. <laughs> you know, it, it had to be George for sure. Yeah, and that time really inspired this book that she has and really made her start to think about the creative process, which I'm really excited to to talk about as well. Yeah. And anyone who hasn't seen the photos, just look up like Beatles in India and you can see uh, the Boyd's there and Mia Farrow's there and her sister Prudence is there and... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Um, so because they were both so shy and incapable of communicating, there was a lot of miscommunication and misunderstood gestures. So unintentionally, she would feel rejected. And like one time when he didn't kiss her goodbye before she was leaving for a modeling gig, she thought his feelings had cooled, which wasn't true at all, apparently. He said, Jenny was dead wrong about my feelings, but it's my fault for masking my love for her with nonchalance and detachment. This pattern plagued us for years and we were never capable of overcoming it. Though we tried to make things work over and over again. They ended up splitting up for two years and he dealt with this heartache by immersing himself in music. So that's when he was a band called uh, Peter B's Lunars, which was entirely instrumental. Um, And it's a funny little side note is that... um, Peter Green, who is in the band, started, and the leader of the band, picked up a guitar for the first time after seeing Eric Clapton. <laughs> so, such a small world. It's so, like, full circle. It's amazing. So, Mick says that Peter Green was the most brilliant musician he's ever played with. Um, he was in a band called the Blues Breakers with John McVie, and they became tight, and it was Peter that named a song called Fleetwood Mac after his favorite rhythm section. Hmm. And the rest is history. <laughs> yeah. So Jenny returned to London in 1968 and began selling Art Nouveau in 1930s China with Patty in a small shop called Juniper. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) He had never stopped pining for her, um, but he wasn't the only one. I know. Do you know who the other one was? He wrote a song about her. Of course, Donovan. Yeah. And he wrote... (laughs) Jennifer Juniper. That's right. And so Donovan had a song called Jennifer Jupiter. Juniper. Juniper. and apparently Donovan followed her to India. Yeah, he's there too. And yeah. But lucky for Mick, she never fancied him. Mm-hmm. During one of his American tours, so this is Mick, during one of Mick's American tours, he wrote Jenny a letter where he asked her to marry him. They hadn't seen each other for six months and she was living in a hippie commune. <laughs> but he came back and she said yes and they moved in together in West London and this is when Fleetwood Mac was getting bigger mm. so if you want to hear from Nick's perspective of how um, you know all the incarnations of Fleetwood Mac how it came to be how everybody got involved definitely pick up his book cool yeah um, she joined them on their American tour and Mick was happy to show her how successful they had become The tour life wasn't for her, however. She wasn't a night owl by nature, so playing music, drinking all night, and sleeping late was not how she'd organically choose to spend her time. Mm. He doesn't mention how she spent her time other than the fact that she was, like, knitting and patchwork and, like, fixing up his garments and making them into these, like, cool 
Cool frock. Cool frock garments. But in her book, she mentions that during that time, she was attending workshops. She was attend- like she was going and finding like spirituality courses and psychology workshops and just kind of like being around all of these creative people, but feeling really, really, really stifled mm-hmm. and really like she had no means of expressing herself mm-hmm. and her creativity. So she was learning about the creative process. Amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Using her time wisely. Yeah. Um, one night, uh, when the band was playing a show in New Orleans with the Grateful Dead, they went to an after party where the drinks had been spiked with LSD. Oh. <laughs> so Mick says, Jenny remembers the night well. She's told me that it changed her. She saw musicians as modern day disciples spreading the word of something greater through their music. Music was the... Um, um, music was the only way to do so because it brought people together and everyone understood. Hmm. So Jenny talks about that moment as well in her book. She does not mention the LSD, but she does again mention earlier how you have this plant, like the seed inside of you, and it might not start to grow for years later. But I think it was through like that time, that moment, India, where things really started that had been like laid dormant in her really started to turn up a little bit. And, you know, like I can think back to to six years ago in Peterborough Mm -hmm. when I had a video camera and, you know, like talking with the dirty nil and then never doing anything with it. It's Mm -hmm. like... You have a seed of something, but it might not be ready yet yeah. to be cultivated. But it's there. It can come about later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in Jenny's book, she talks about having a profound yearning inside of herself. She was using marijuana and acid as an instrument for an inner odyssey to spiritual enlightenment. She had some spiritual awakenings, which went nicely with what George and Patty were feeling at the time. Um, And she says that it was there that she saw everything in a circle. Life, death, rebirth, reincarnation. If it was as if a veil had been lifted, she says, to show me something I had somehow known all along. It was my first intuitive moment and would one day influence my own creativity. Beautifully said. Wow. Wow. She was feeling frustrated in 1967 because she felt like it was okay for everyone at that time to express themselves creatively through art and music, but she had no idea how to do that for Mm -hmm. herself. Yeah, it's not easy being the one that doesn't have the outlet and you see all these creative people around you doing uh, their passion, for sure. I know. So she says... She was terribly shy since my earliest childhood. I could barely articulate my ideas verbally, much less any other way. There were a few people I could talk to at East, so I wrote poem after poem lamenting my uselessness as a non-creative person. But she's being creative. (laughs) Right? So, and I remember that too. And I remember being in Peterborough, being surrounded by this creativity, seeing how people's like ideas, thoughts, emotions flooded through them, how it translated through whatever instrument they were playing. And I'm sitting here like, or, you know, how I thought, like, oh, I'm a bump on a log. What do I, what am I doing? What's my contribution? Mm -hmm. I know I've told the story before, but it was when, you know, my friend Mark Harris was like, you're just being yourself. Yes. You're just here, a part of it. And that's important too. Yeah. That's a role that 
needs to be taken as well. Right. But, uh, you know, which is nice now because we take the role and then we we're like, okay, now I'm comfortable in that role. Now what can we do with it? Now yeah. where can we go with it? And Constantly growing. Yeah. So speaking of growth, she talks about the creation and growth of Fleetwood Mac and Peter Green's brilliant turn into a creative but destructive force. He had a spiritual awareness and at the pinnacle of his career ended up retreating into himself. Hmm. So I think he ended up growing his hair really long and just kind of like I think probably drugs had something to do with it. For sure. Um, so yeah, like I said, when they when she toured with them, she attended workshops on spirituality and philosophical issues while writing poetry about life's meaning. So to cope with the success of the band and through social social situations, she started drinking and taking cocaine as well. So because she was so, so shy, these substances allowed her to talk, laugh, and stay awake into the early hours. At this point, um, they did have children, but she says she was always able to wake up for them. And when the band was touring and she was at home, she felt super frustrated. <laughs> She didn't say super frustrated. Those were my words. <laughs> um, there was so much artistic productivity around her. And she says that she felt impotent. Mm. Um, like things were jammed inside of her. And she just did not have any way to get it out. Um, the success of the band and the endless touring caused major strain on the relationship. So that's a big reason why they were on and off throughout the years. Uh, remarrying in 1976. She did quit using drugs and alcohol. Um, Mick didn't. And it was in 1978 when she left. She really left him and went to live in a cottage with her daughters. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, it's impossible to be in a relationship with someone who's indulging when you're not. As uh, so many rock wives <laughs> have told us in many, many books. <laughs> yeah. 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 So at this time, Patty was married to Eric, and it was also during this time that Jenny started going to psychotherapy. Okay. So psychotherapy is really in with, like, uh, Jungian theory, like Carl, Carl Jung and yeah. the subconscious. So I, you know, couldn't get past one page of Jenny's book without hearing the word unconscious or like collective conscious or i see um you know like talking about the shadow self and stuff like that and i do have some experience um with therapy and with a psychotherapist and that was about a year ago when things were like really tough with my family and my dad's health and i was just like oh, i just need to talk to somebody and i like I love this woman. She was so helpful and so great. But she was also into, not but, but and, she was also uh, really into this type of therapy as well. She had, I saw a lot of books about like Jungian theory and things like that and getting into your shadow self and really um, like reverting back into like your childhood. Mm -hmm. And it was through like regressing back into childhood work and evaluating that stuff that, I don't know, I feel like, things make a lot of sense i feel stronger more empowered and it was actually really nice I'm that's that's fantastic really happy that i had the opportunity to to do that mm -hmm. um so jenny says after a year i became reacquainted with my inner self and found a tremendous release of long buried emotions everything i had mistakenly thought alcohol could do i discovered therapy was doing naturally through sharing my feelings with an objective listener, I accepted myself. 
it was my first real inkling that the key to the creative process for which I'd researched for so long was simply trusting my inner self. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And that's that's it. It's trusting that inner self and that inner, yeah. Like, I was so inspired by working with 11 and 12-year-olds this year because it made me remember who I was at mm. that time, who I thought to, like, who what I believed in, how I believed that I could do anything and accomplish this and... Um, and it's funny because it was around that time that I was like valedictorian of like my graduating like grade A class, you know, like with using my voice, speaking into a microphone. And that was lost along the ways, like mm-hmm. especially in my high school years when I was like in for a shock of my life when I went to like a terrible high school mm-hmm. that really was academics and sports based and really did not champion or encourage the arts. arts. That's awful. It was sad. Yeah. And then by the time I got to university and was immersed back into the arts, it was like, well, what's my role here? I'd I'd lost sight of who I was. And then so it's been really through evaluating the process of like uh, childhood and thinking about the colors that uh, like that made me feel empowered and really just like bringing that stuff into my life that it's true. Like you you are able to listen to your inner self. It's important not to bury things like you have to you have to look back. You have to face things. You have to like that's the only way you're going to understand like yourself and get through everything that life kind of throws at you for sure. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, I was just talking to a friend the other day about how like everybody could use therapy. Yeah. Every single person on the entire planet, if only it was made available, easily acceptable, like didn't cost an arm yep. and a leg. Every single person. Yeah, everyone would could be- benefit. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like at least at some point in your life, you know? Especially finding the right person that works for you and mm-hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so Jenny says that she like you know accepting herself trusting her inner self in 1984 she remarried and began working for her bachelor's degree in the humanities in los angeles so she was learning and finding out who she was spiritually she was so inspired by the power of psychotherapy that she decided to become a psychologist she got her master's degree in counseling psychology and then got her doctorate When she began contemplating a topic for her PhD dissertation, she thought about Eric Clapton, the creative process, formulated questions, which actually can be found at the back of the book, and then contacted musicians she knows, which, as we know, is um, a good 75 of them. (laughs) Yeah, she had a good source. (laughs) (laughs) The book is the result of the information she gathered between 1987 and uh, 1991, and... yeah, she she interviewed people. And then so at the back of the book, it gives questions that she asked them to fill out. There's 30 of them. And guess what? It's a lot of questions that we ask when we interview people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was your upbringing like? Any brothers or sisters? Did your parents raise you? Would you describe yourself as outgoing or shy and introverted? Were either of your parents musical? Was your creativity encouraged? Who inspired you musically as a child? Did you ever feel different from other children? Mm. And then she gets kind of like pretty deep. Do you believe you're here for a reason? Wow. Um, 
have you ever experienced a transcendent or peak experience while singing, playing, or composing? Mm. Explain what that feels like. Did you ever reflect, why me? <laughs> yeah, so um, pretty cool questions that I won't uh, read all of them, but I'm just going to steal them for our next interview. I would so love to uh, go through all those 75 people and see like exactly what they were I know, right? Um, are you in touch with the child in you? So pretty much they answer these questions in this book, though, but it's not just like one chapter Eric Clapton answering the questions. I see. It's, it's kind the, of scattered The book is, is brought... Is, divided and then she takes answers and scatters them which is why it was kind of difficult like it would have been very difficult to do an episode just on her book alone yeah 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 um so the contents of the book are the main chapters are called nurturing creativity the drive to create the unconscious the collective unconscious the peak experience, chemicals and creativity, the creative potential, and then full circle. Nice. Yeah. So inside of those um, big chapters are things like how nurturing fosters creativity, um, musical encouragement in working class families, the courage to create rich inner lives and i'm just like i'm just pulling now from yeah, here like yeah. um the childlike nature of the unconscious reaching no mind so joni mitchell has a lot of really cool stuff to say about no mind so um for that they talk about mental stillness um philosophy like philosophies such as zen buddhism teach that during meditation that the busy mind can be replaced by no mind I'm trying to get there. Yeah. It's like every day, like, come on, 10 minutes. <laughs> sit your ass down and do 10 minutes. So that's what I'm working on personally. Mm. Um, but Jenny says that it's, she thinks it's the same place that many artists describe reaching during their creative work. So tapping into source, um, which like, you know, like for my, yeah, for if we don't exactly want to say the word God or universe, source is a good one. Mm. Uh, a channel opening up. So, um, yeah, Joni Mitchell has something interesting to say about that. And if you would like to hear it, yeah, would you lay like it on me, please? Okay, I'm gonna I'll lay speak it on for everyone. Right I say yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, where are you, Joni? Joni Mitchell, who has been a student of Zen, described the concept of no mind and its role in her painting as well as her songwriting. When I paint for long hours, my mind stills. If you hooked me up to a meter, I don't know what you'd find, but maybe it's like a dream state. It goes very abstract. The dialogue is absolutely still. It's like zen, no mind. You hear electrical synapses, which could be cosmic electricity snapping and occasionally up into that void, into the zen, no mind, no mind comes a command. Red in the upper left corner. There's no afterthought because ego is the afterthought. You paint red in the upper left-hand corner and then it all goes back into the zone again. You achieve that sometimes in music. I think I achieve it in the loneliness of the night just playing my guitar repetitively. The mantra of it, the drone of it, will get you there. In performance, you're going down deep within and then you're coming back out to receive your applause. There's a more self-conscious art form in performance. People are applauding you. Yeah. She continues, with writing, you have to plumb into the subconscious, and there's a lot of scary things down there, like a bad dream sometimes. If you can extricate yourself from it and face up to it, you come back with a lot of self-knowledge, which then gives you greater human knowledge, and that helps 
To know yourself is to know the world. Everything good, bad, and indifferent is in each one of us to varying degrees. So the more you know that, the more you know about what, about that which is external. So in that way, the writing process is fantastic psychotherapy if you can survive, but it is tricky. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So there's a lot of that stuff. Um, uh, in yeah, I'm the definitely book. gonna read this book. A lot of really interesting. Uh, well, some of my favorite stuff actually came from Sinead O'Connor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they talk a lot about like artists being able to speak about what's happening in the culture, the spirit of the time. Um, Uh, so one thing that Sinead O'Connor did say was, I think the function of art is to reflect God and to try to remember all the knowledge that we had before we were born of how powerful we are and what God is. I think that's the drive to create, to fill the space, to fill the emptiness, even for just two seconds, to achieve the sense of having reflected um, and having connected with whatever it is that is above us. Um, and then Jenny goes on to talk about George Harrison. So, right, like George Harrison was the one that brought the Beatles to India. And so they obviously had this very spiritual connection. And she said that George Harrison told her that he found the Beatles' huge influence on society was quite baffling to him at the time. Um, and he said that it's strange how the chemistry between the four of them made it that big through the world Mm -hmm. there wasn't any country in the world even the most obscure places that didn't know about the beatles from grandparents to babies it just blanketed everything and that amazed uh, him more than anything yeah that must have been such a crazy experience especially being so young you know yeah it's a lot of pressure and Ringo Starr concurred I didn't think we were actually there thinking we should call Agnes DeMarco she does a really good Ringo Starr impression (laughs) remember she told us that and then we forgot to like say oh yeah do it for so we should just call every time Ringo Starr quotes something we should just call Agnes Agnes and ask her to read it so anyways he says I don't think we were actually there thinking we were tapping into this great God-given consciousness for everybody I don't know if you think like that when you're a teenager or in your early 20s you're just playing the best you can hmm. yeah yeah so then you know like denise donald would think this was interesting because it's like music reflecting our times and the power of music actually i didn't tell you this but her and i've been emailing each other songs back and forth Aww. like uh <laughs> like kind of p- protest songs like she sent me one about uh, her friend of hers had written this song about like little hands oh like, singing it to him. yeah i should show it to you and then i sent her the song fuck you by lily allen that yeah. lily had written for george bush, george bush like yeah. years ago um, you're just some racist who can't tie yeah. my laces. <laughs> Your point of view is medieval. Unfortunately, it could be about Donald Trump oh, as well. Oh, totally, totally. Okay, and then the last thing that I want to read is beca- is something that Michael McDonald said. Because, one, my family and I are obsessed with Michael McDonald, and it's just hilarious that she talks, like, a lot to him in, in this book. Um... But he really talks about the connection between the musician and the audience, which, of course, we're interested in. Yes. So Michael McDonald stressed how his connection with the audience is essential to his self-expression. He says, oh, I wish I could do with Michael McDonald voice. 
The audience could easily be 50% of the whole musical experience. Okay, the audience could easily be 50% of the whole musical experience, probably more. Musicians can only respond to themselves so much. In many cases, the show has been played so many times that it's only going to be so exciting. The real excitement for them is the rapport with the audience. What the audience feels overrides any element of boredom from having just rehearsed and played the same show many times. I've always wondered that. Mm. When you've played the song for many years, the whole ball of wax is the night. The audience, the venue, and that experience unto itself. Which is like why I like to go to shows and try to give engage an experience as well. Like have a good time. Like yeah, exactly. That's why like, and yeah, I'm going to say this again. I think Bob Dylan had a great time <laughs> when we were dancing at the front of the stage. Because it's night after night, same thing, people sitting in their seats. And I was sitting there and I was like, it's not that I'm bored at this Bob Dylan concert. Fuck no. But like... I can't sit still. So eventually when I got the opportunity to like run up there and dance, damn it, it was so good. Um, yeah, and then I forget who it was. It was somewhere in this book that said that they try to find somebody in the middle of the audience, connect with them, and then see how the energy spreads, spreads. out throughout the entire venue. Amazing. Which is pretty cool. And then it reminds you of... Um, um, <laughs> almost Famous when Jeff BB is like... Oh, yeah. I connect. Yeah. I get people off. I find the one guy who's not getting off, yeah. and I make him get exactly. off. <laughs> exactly. <sighs> yeah. So it's um it's a book. It's quite uh, an intense book, you know, um, pretty heavy, pretty. But very informative. But very informative. Super interesting. As all of these books, I actually got um, an Instagram message from somebody who follows us on Instagram that was like, I've read all those three books. Amazing. Yeah. So she's got this PhD now. Does she teach? Does what, What's Jenny up to? Do you know? Um, yes. I just had it in her book here. Although, like, this book was written... Um, few years ago now i didn't find too much of her online mm-hmm. um as in like yeah does, is, does she have social media and yeah. whatnot but um yeah i know she she's living with her husband ian wallace um she's got some grandchildren I can picture her um, teaching. Jenny Boyd, PhD, is a psychologist and writer who has worked as a therapist at the Individual and Family Counseling Center in Los Angeles and has lectured on creativity at several Southern California schools. She currently is a consultant to Sierra Tucson, a treatment center for emotional, mental, and behavioral disorders. With her husband, Ian Wallace, she divides her time between Malibu, California, and Surrey, England. Nice. Yeah. That's great. Yep. So she found her... Her place. Mm. Just like uh, Chris O'Dell. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love the, I love uh, hearing stories of women, you know, going through that struggle that we all go through at some point and, you know, finding their way out and finding what's right for them and living, living their passion. You know, that's oh. always a beautiful thing. Totally. So it's, um... Somebody called Tiny Waves 12, hey yo, who wrote, read all three. And I said, what did you think about Jenny's book? And um, yeah, she's just, well, this person said, you know, she mixes part of her life, adds what makes me t- musicians tick. Um, she's become a therapist and adds in uh, elements of her teachings going down the path of discovery and fulfillment. Great. 
Yeah. Great description. Yep. So that brings an end to Jenny. That brings a gen- an end to Jenny Boyd PhD. Yeah. But um I yeah, I think we should we should try and find her and reach out and send her the episode and say We'll try. Say thank you. And uh, Thank you Jenny. And yeah, if people want more of the Boyds, they can check out the first episode with Patty. Yeah, there's a really cute picture actually of uh, one of Jenny's book signings, and uh, Mick Fleetwood is beside her, and he's just like all tall. You know, we've seen him lately. He's tall, but he's really filled out, so he's really large, yeah, yeah, yeah. With a big white beard, and it's just really nice to see that they've uh, maintained this friendship over the years, yeah. this family, this respect, and yeah. like they were saying, this like yeah, they have grand love now. for each other, and it's like you know, it's understandable. You guys were 15, yeah, when you that's met, crazy. and you went through a lot, but yeah. it's just uh beautiful and it's always beautiful to be able to remain close to someone that you once loved yeah yeah well that's it for today everybody thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed the episode yeah and thank you shanti for your hard work okay and then next time it's going to be links telling me a story that's right and me and you guys all of you guys who get to listen <laughs> to that okay take care goodbye we love you love you bye Have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered, but wait, could any of this really happen? And will I live long enough to see it? That's what our show Hypothetical is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what-if questions about the future. Like, what if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways, through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists. The result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses. And, spoiler alert, a lot of the science fiction out there, it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think. Come time travel with me into the future on Hypothetical. New episodes on Tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Hypothetical. That's H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L.